0: anybody out there
1: roll up
0: roll up ladies and
1: gentlemen of children of all ages books comics comics, sci-fi tv and film live from the palace of glittering delights and here host dandry leyland galactica 1980 is the bastard offspring of the galactica kingdom Not as nostalgically remembered as the 78 original, nowhere near as critically acclaimed as the 2003 reimagining, it's a show no one, except the ABC network, wanted. After the cancellation of Battlestar Galactica in 1979, Universal Pictures were willing to write this Star Wars for television off as an expensive flop, despite its massive early ratings, cinematic releases, and incredible pop culture penetration. However, ABC quickly realised that the early cancellation for Galactica was a mistake and approached creator Glenn A. Larson for a new version of the series. This version, originally entitled Galactica 1980 but later renamed Battlestar Galactica, would be set 30 years after the original series and be set on Earth, the Galactica having found the object of its quest. It's easy to see why this decision was made. For its time, Galactica was the most expensive TV show ever made, costing a whopping $9 million for its three-hour pilot, and subsequently racking up a budget of $1 million plus per episode. Galactica 1980 would circumvent this, not only with its Earth-bound setting, but by having an all-new and presumably cheaper cast. Only Lorne Green as Commander Adama would appear as a regular. Original series actor Herb Jefferson Jr. as Colonel Boomer would make appearances from time to time. To establish the 30 years hence timeline, Green would have a ferret stuck to his chin, and Jefferson Jr., well, they wouldn't even bother trying to age Jefferson Jr. Maybe he's one of those lucky people who doesn't age. Executive producers and writers for the series, Alan Cole and Chris Bunch used to have a blog that detailed their experiences on Galactica 1980, a show they described as so dire even the actors wanted off It was marvellous reading, really pulling no punches on the behind-the-scenes details of many of the television shows they worked on. They detail how Larson never showed up to the stage, mailing in his scripts once a week and then going off to play golf. They discuss how the 7pm Sunday night time slot, the so-called family hour derailed the show totally, forcing them to include educational dialogue in the script and gutting any attempts to make the show a legitimate follow-up to the original. The premise has the Galactica locate Earth, but the Cylons have followed. Why the Cylons never mounted a full-scale attack on Earth is something I've long since forgotten, but given that the Galacticans and the Cylons' technology is far more advanced than Earthlings, one would have thought it wouldn't have been a particularly long battle. Original stars Richard Hatch and Dirk Benedict were replaced by Kent McCord and Barry Van Dyke as the new leads Troy and Dylan. To provide some continuity to the original, it was revealed that Troy was in fact Boxy, Apollo's son from the original show. Van Dyke had a run of replacing better actors in ill-fated continuations. He took over from Jan Michael Vincent in the terrible fourth season of Erwolf, otherwise known as the season that shall not be mentioned. Galactica 1980 was, make no mistake, a risible show. I loathed it, even as a kid. I wanted to know where Apollo and Starbuck had gone, why this show was so terrible compared to the original, and what the hell were all these kids doing in it? My ITV region, Granada, sensibly buried it in a 1pm on a Saturday afternoon time slot. Of course, I still watched every episode, hoping against hope that it would get better. Against all the odds, it did. For one episode, at least. The final episode of Galactica 1980 was entitled The Return of Starbuck and written by Glenn Larson and directed by Ron Satloff. It features, as the title suggests, the return of original series star Dirk Benedict as Lieutenant Starbuck and features none of the show's regular cast apart from Long Green. Herb Jefferson Jr. makes one of his guest appearances as Boomer, making this feel like a real continuation of the original show. The episode can genuinely lay claim to being one of the best things Larson ever wrote, and is even better than a number of the original series episodes. It features a very melancholic air and a downbeat ending, but more crucially for fans, answers one of the burning questions of Galactica fandom. What did happen to Starbuck? Starbuck was never mentioned in any other episode of Galactica 1980, and Apollo appeared only on a picture on Adama's desk. This episode at least provided some closure, and did it very well. It was filmed almost entirely on location at Red Rock Canyon in California, and was apparently freezing cold for most of the shoot. Benedict was apparently a good sport about all this, with director Ron Satloff quoted as saying, Benedict had an actor's ego but tempered in humanism. I liked the guy a lot. But Satloff also had a lot of respect for actress Judith Chapman, who had to wear a skimpy dress throughout most of her scenes. As with an earlier episode of Palace, I'm going to devote this entire episode to one hour of TV, similar to how I covered the Snur episode of the Hulk back a few episodes ago, hopefully trying to explain why I think this is a pretty remarkable hour of TV, made even more remarkable considering its source. Here is the teaser for the show and the reworked opening credit theme.
2: Yeah. i had a dream about a great warrior his name was starbuck okay i've had it with you three you're all on report i'm sick and tired of this uh, silent treatment i do hereby give you life no, no, I don't don't get crazy not friends <laughs>
0: of space. And now, we near the end of our journey. We have at last found Earth.
1: Am I the only one who thinks Long Green should have took another pass at that? He seems to pause in the wrong place. Originally entitled Starbucks Greatest Journey, the episode opens with irritating child prodigy Dr. Z telling Adama all about a dream he had. Dr. Z was a god-awful addition to the cast of Galactica 1980 and far more irritating than Boxy ever was. Z was a hyper-intelligent child who led the Galacticans to Earth and was created so the kids watching had a character they could relate to. In the history of television, from Joe 90 to Lost in Space to Star Trek The Next Generation, no hyper-intelligent kid has ever related to child viewers. In fact, most child viewers end up hating that character, far preferring to be Starbuck than this snotty kid with the bad mop top. Z was played here by an actor called Patrick Stewart, although Robbie Rist originated the role in the first couple of episodes. In his dream, Z learned that he was not born of the fleet, but elsewhere, and the dream focused on a great warrior, a warrior named Starbuck. Intrigued, Adama asks Z to elaborate, and we cut to a Viper versus Cylon battle. This opening battle is lifted wholesale from an earlier episode of Galactica called The Young Lords, complete with the same dialogue between Starbuck and Boomer. Interestingly, this appears to be an addition made in editing, as it's not how this scene plays out in the original script. Instead, the scene opens a minute or two later, with Starbuck and Boomer already in trouble. Starbuck pulls the patented reverse turbos manoeuvre, which the Cylons still haven't learned to avoid. In fact, they compliment Starbuck on his skills as a warrior. No wonder the colonies survived for as long as they did. There is a curious editing error here in the show. In the script, Starbuck destroys one Cylon raider and clips the second. This raider then spirals out of control. In the episode, the scene cuts from Starbuck destroying the one raider to the other Cylon pilots mentioning they are going to crash, which makes no sense as in the show, Starbuck didn't even hit them. Starbuck and Boomer share a few words that are far more fatalistic than usual for this show. Despite beginning with the end of the world, Galactica was quite an upbeat show, but the banter here between Starbuck and Boomer has a far darker subtext. Even though they are joking with each other, both men know this is probably the end for Starbuck. The fleet can't come back for him, and Starbuck has few options open to him in a damaged Viper. The script again has a few more exchanges cut from the finished episode, really feeding into the idea that Starbuck isn't coming back from this one. Interestingly, for Galactica aficionados, Starbuck mentions that both Athena and Cassiopeia, his girlfriends in the original show, imply that they are still alive at this point in the timeline, even though neither one was referenced in Galactica 1980. There's still no mention of Apollo, though, which is a curious omission. Boomer makes it back to the fleet, and Adama tells him they cannot return for Starbuck. They can't risk the fleet for one man, no matter who that man may be. Watching this as a kid, I think this is what stuck out to me the most. Every other episode of Galactica, where a character was lost on the backlot planet of central casting, Adama and the crew would move heaven and earth to get them back, and we always knew they'd succeed. After all, that was how TV worked. But the viewer goes into this episode knowing Starbuck doesn't come back, as he isn't in any other episode of Galactica 1980. As such, there's a feeling of foreboding to this episode that even the original didn't have after its opening episode, and Galactica 1980 could never hope to even aspire to. If I'm being overly critical, I could point out that Long Green's performance as a dharma is incredibly hammy here, with overemphasised hand gestures and freely falling man tears, which I kind of didn't buy from a commanding officer on the bridge in the middle of a battle. We also have a visual clue that this is some time ago. Green has removed his comedy beard. Fortunately, Starbuck finds a planet capable of supporting life, again a scene that is detailed more adroitly in the script, where he analyses a number of crash-landing possibilities for earth content and water supplies. In the finished episode, he just kind of gets lucky. nineteen 1980's limited effects budget doesn't really hamper the crash, which we don't really see, but a large fireball and then a slow pan across the remains of a downed viper are effective in conveying what happened. The limited effects are also competent in depicting the alien landscape thanks to stock footage from both Galactica and Buck Rogers, and shots of 3 superimposed suns in the sky are an effective way of demonstrating that Starbuck is on an alien world. At this point, Starbuck starts narrating the action himself, which is convenient for me because I need a drink. Here's a clip.
2: There was nothing left but my escape pod, which fired automatically moments before my ship impacted. That had saved my life but to what end? I set my automatic beacon to transmit a continuous signal to those rescuers I knew would never come. Now was time to set out and explore the planet. Who knows? I might discover an oasis, a citadel of civilization, thousands of primitive people who would worship me as some kind of winged god who dropped in on them out of the heavens. Yes, sir, no question about it. This could be the best thing that ever happened to me. I decided to call my new home Starbuck, the planet Starbuck. Why not? I discovered it. It was mine. All mine. Starbuck the planet had not turned out to be any better off than Starbuck the ill-fortuned warrior. I had only enough food rations to last a few days. No shelter and I was alone. All alone. wasn't alone. It was metallic, honed, shaped, placed there by a living being. My heart stopped, rose up into my throat, and nearly gagged me. What had I done? What had so angered the gods that they would do this to me? It was Cylon.
1: uses the Cylon Raider, which had survived the crash better than his own Viper, to build a shelter out of a cave he finds. He uses his pistol to create a fire, and we later discover he also uses his weapon to access an underwater stream. We don't seem hunting or foraging for food, which I think was a missed opportunity to teach kids where food comes from, but it's nice that any attention was paid at all to this. It's all rather TV-safe in terms of the survival, but these scenes wonderfully convey Starbuck's descent into loneliness and madness, as well as his more pressing problems such as food and shelter. Starbuck was a character that thrived around people. He liked the company of women, as well as a drink or a game of chance with his friends. Whilst he was a man who clearly looked out for himself, he still had a loyalty to his good friends that belied his selfish facade. In this barren landscape, though, Starbuck starts to crack, talking to himself and even pretending the three destroyed Cylons are his warriors and he, the commanding officer. This loneliness drives Starbuck to do something that, on the face of it, is really dumb. He uses the remains of the three Cylon warriors to cobble together one fully functioning Cylon. Here's a clip of Starbuck activating his buddy that he will call CY.
2: Lieutenant First Class of the Colonial Fleet,
1: I do hereby give you...
2: Life. It's hooked up out there. It's hooked up here. All hooked up here. Energizer on the ship seems to have a good charge. Yeah, all that work. It's not right discouraging. Well, this is a grand day. I've hmm. only been in charge of this planet for three days, and already I've doubled the population. I do hereby declare me president-elect. If that's all right with you. Die, human. Don't be ridiculous. Think I'd save you and then let you shoot me? Besides, <laughs> it doesn't work. See? Here, try it. You really did. How'd you like to end up like those two? Huh? Human evil. Ah, uh, now, now let's not get hostile. See, I can turn you off or on but I don't intend to keep on doing that not if you're willing to listen to uh, reason is any of this making any sense turn off and turn on okay here's how it works now you need a good charge so I can get rid of these wires but until I figure out how to do that you're drawing power from your ship out there yeah not exactly a textbook landing no offense but were you at the controls during that touchdown Cylons work as a team we are equals yeah well that's a very nice policy except when things start going wrong so uh, what happened during the landing the situation did not compute so you didn't know what to do what happened next someone whip out the manual yes the manual did not help What did you do when it came time for a little personal initiative? We were taking a vote when the ground came up and hit us. Yeah, well, now around here, I'm in charge.
0: That is impossible. I am a Cylon. You are a human being. We are
2: enemies. Why? There are only the two of us on this entire planet. There's no reason for us to be enemies. You know, by working together, we might survive. Probably not, but uh, we might.
0: It is out of the question. We are enemies. I must destroy you.
2: Huh? That's your last word. You you refuse to be friends.
0: We are enemies.
2: Okay, I'm go- I'm gonna have to shut you off. You are sure?
0: We are enemies.
2: Huh? Okay, your uh, your final word. Enemies. Oh, this is a shame. I really worked so hard putting you together. I ah, here it goes. Wait. say something why did you put me back together well because uh, after being alone here for three days i decided i needed a friend we are enemies well no we're cultural dissidents that means our cultures don't get along but but that's in their world here things are uh, different if i were dead you would be all alone I do not
0: need anyone else. I am self-sufficient.
2: Oh, that's uh, too bad. You have no sense of values beyond your own survival? Is that right?
0: I exist that the Cylon Empire may grow
2: and organize the universe. Well, what are you going to do with it when it's organized? Hello, I didn't hear an answer. What are you going to do with the universe once you have it organized?
0: I don't recall anyone ever asking that question.
2: Well, I'm asking it. Don't you have any feelings about your uh, empire? Don't you care what happens to it?
0: I was created to serve
2: our empire. Ah. Now we're getting someplace. So, you uh, you uh, are grateful to the empire for creating you so that you might serve? Yes. Well, then. How do you feel about me? I recreated you after you were destroyed. You
0: repaired me. You did not create me. I am a Cylon.
2: So you have no feelings of loyalty to me for saving you? I would have to think about that. Take your time. That's all we have. Although we could even run out of that. Why do you say that? You cannot exist without energy to drive your circuits and pumps and... I can't exist without food. Food? Shh. They sure sent you guys out with a minimum of information. Aren't you even interested in what a human is? Don't you care what it is you've been trying to destroy for a thousand years? You are our enemy. Yes, so you keep telling me. But why are we the enemy? Because you are. Oh, Sai. You mind if I call you Sai? Sai, you have the mentality of a two-year-old. A two-year-old? What? Hopeless. Absolutely hopeless. Okay, we're going to start from scratch. You're going to school, and I'm going to teach you. And when I'm through, you're going to know all about humans. And maybe I'll know something about Cylons.
0: I'd like that very much.
2: Starbuck. Just call me Starbuck. Just like this planet you're on. Yeah, this planet is called Starbuck. What an interesting coincidence. Yes, isn't it? Oh, I've got a lot of interesting things to teach you. By the way, have you ever played a card game called Pyramid? What is a card game? <laughs> Lovely. You have all the makings of a perfect companion.
1: That clip that you just heard cut off on a rather funny line that is present in the script. After Starbuck says, you're a perfect companion, he adds, almost. The implication being Starbuck has no interest in using Psy si as a sex toy. Now, I know that that was a long clip, but it serves to emphasise a point. Many people have been sniffy about Glenn Larson's writing. Hell, I've been sniffy about Glenn Larson's writing. But this scene is actually really well written. There is humour, largely at the expense of the naive Cylon. But Larson also gets to say something about the nature of conflict. Cultures may have their differences, Starbuck says, but people are very much alike wherever they are from. Yes, Larson is pulling his usual trick of taking a movie and putting it on TV, in this case Hell in the Pacific, but it's effective. All credit must go to the actors. Dirk Benedict was presumably acting to a tin cannon and off-camera production assistant doing size voice and manages to bring humanity and believability to his role. Rex Cutter, who plays Psy, brings a lot to it as well, using his body language very well. He's a much bigger man than Benedict, and the audience believe that even without a weapon, Starbuck could be in trouble. Cy also has a slightly different voice to other Cylons. Some people have viewed this as a mistake, but even as a kid, I just assumed that because Starbuck had put Cy together from bits of other broken Cylons, he'd fracked up the programming slightly. Speaking of frack... Whilst Galactica's other expletive, Carb, appeared liberally in Galactica 1980, this was the only time any of the characters used the more explicit terminology. Starbuck and Sai develop a relationship, with Starbuck teaching Sai about women and how to play the card game Pyramid. Starbuck is starting to grow tired and restless, and Sai vows to find him a woman for companionship. The relationship between the two of them is actually quite touching and well played. Given that Sai has no facial expression to speak of, the audience's sympathy for him is purely down to the body language of Rex Cutter, Benedict's reactions to Same, and the voiceover. Sai returns later with a surprise. He's found a woman. Here's the clip
0: Starbuck, I have brought you a surprise. Sai, what, what in that? Woman.
2: Dreams with a lone enemy I couldn't control There had been visions of food, the fleet My boyhood home on Caprica And most haunting of all, the face of a girl I'd never met She's alive I
0: presumed you'd prefer her that way
2: Sigh, this uh, isn't funny this is a living, breathing human being.
0: Yes, I feel I have already compromised everything I believe in. What's helping one
2: more human going to matter, more or less? Uh, si, this is uh, more than a woman. I'm sorry if you are
0: displeased. There wasn't much of a
2: selection. Si, this woman is with child. Child? A small human. She's going to bear another human life. I am rapidly being surrounded. Sai. So we need water. Go to the spot near the clip for my laser. Open the underground stream.
0: By your command. Although, technically, you have no real authority to order me around.
2: Sai, go!
0: I'm going. I'm going.
1: The strange and unusual lady is named Angela and played by Judith Chapman. Chapman showed up in a lot of shows of this era, appearing in The Incredible Hulk, Magnum P.I., Buck Rogers, The Fall Guy and many others over the years. Oddly, she never tells Starbuck her name, either in the finished episode or the script. She's also very vague about where she comes from and refers to the child as Starbucks when she talks about it. Starbuck is so shocked when she calls the child his that he completely overlooks that she points out that the Cylon Raider has a homing beacon that is still working, and a Cylon patrol will be happening by real soon. In an otherwise well-structured episode, this felt like it was slipped in rather abruptly. Starbuck does later mention that he has destroyed the beacon, but Angela is insistent that because they have built it, the Cylons will come. Maybe they should have been played by Kevin Costner. Angela says that they need to use whatever materials they have to hand to build a ship to save the child. Speaking of children, one of the things Galactica 1980 was required to do as part of the family hour slot was to slide instructional and educational information into its scripts for the kids who may be watching. As I mentioned earlier, this was one of the problems Chris Bunch had writing for the series. Normally this was cack-handed and cringe-worthy, but this episode handles it well, such as Starbuck telling Cy where babies come from.
2: That was my rudder. Yeah, well, not anymore. Now it's a cradle for the baby.
0: What time is the baby's estimated time
2: of arrival? Make it sound like a battle squadron coming in for landing. It's a baby, Si, a baby. They have their own way of getting here when they're good and ready. At home, we simply make a new Cylon when we need one. Yeah, well, with humans, it takes nine and a half months from the time a mother and a father decide they want a child until they get one.
0: Very primitive. But at least we will have another pair of strong hands to help
2: turn the generator. Sorry, sir, I got more bad news. You see, humans, unlike most creatures in in nature, they uh, arrive in a completely helpless mode. I'm afraid you're going to be up most of the night turning the generator to provide additional heat for the child. The infant can draw heat from its mother. Uh, Yes, but at night it'll still need its wrappings changed.
0: How long must we apply this procedure? For at least the first few months. This entire operation sounds like a typical human plan. Impractical and clumsy. It is not a wonder you lost the war.
1: Also worth noting, in the script, Starbuck tries to locate where Angela came from but comes up empty. Sadly, these scenes are cut from the show, which is a shame as it adds the cynicism to Starbuck's character that was in the original. By showing that he does not take Angela's claims at face value, Starbuck seems less naive. Following Angela's instructions, Cy and Starbuck do manage to make a small craft, but Cy is starting to grow jealous of Angela and the baby, especially after she gives birth. There's a really nice moment, though, where Starbuck names Cy the godfather to the child. Starbuck still thinks Angela is slightly mad, but believes these small craft can propel them all to safety. Watching this scene now, I don't think Starbuck ever had any intention of going with them, even though that is what he tells Angela he plans to do, as the craft is clearly too small for three people. Events suddenly escalate when three Cylons arrive, and Starbuck is shocked when Cy leaves him to return to his people. Starbuck puts Angela and the baby in the craft and sends them off into space on a pre-programmed heading for the fleet. Cy, however, has not deserted Starbuck, but has fixed his laser and faces the Cylons
0: himself. Greetings, Centurion. Identify. I am group leader Cyrus. Lower your weapons. And where is a human I extend my weapon that I may perform the following function.
2: Sai! Sai! You saved our lives. Sai, you alright?
0: I don't think so. My circuits are fading.
2: Oh, sorry. No, sir. No! Just you and me now. One human and one Cylon.
0: No, Starbuck. Not human. Not Cylon. Friends. The child is safely on its way. And I am ready to return home now. And I judge this mortal to be good. So very good.
1: Back on the Galactica, Doctor Z concludes his story, and it turns out that he was that baby. The episode closes out with Starbuck still alone on a desolate planet. The script has a much longer epilogue, in it, Boomer tracks the signal and finds the baby in a suspended animation-type state and brings him aboard the Galactica. The fleet assume that the child was dispatched after a battle, knowing not where he came from nor who his parents were. Adama tells Z that Starbuck was a real warrior and his disappearance was something that has bothered him for some time. Perhaps Z states, Starbuck and his mother may still be alive somewhere out amongst the stars. The Return of Starbuck is a quite remarkable episode of television, and that it almost single-handedly makes Galactica 1980's existence worthwhile. There are a lot of elements in this episode that are never explained, such as where Angela came from, and if Starbuck lived or died, but as a last episode it not only gives nice closure to both shows, but the entire Galactica saga. Besides, leaving the audience with some questions is a good way to go out, as it provides grist for the discussion mill, and Starbuck's sacrifice ultimately led to the fleet being saved. Whilst Galactica 1980 is by no means good, this lone episode is one of the best episodes of either series. Starbuck's sense of sacrifice, as well as the themes of companionship and the nature of enemies in times of war, managing to put the difference aside to work together, are done exceptionally well. There's also a heavy theological element to the script, with evidence of a higher power intervening, which fits in with Galactica's backstory that the Galacticans were somehow descended from alien beings. Normally, man was not meant to know messages bug the crap out of it, but for some reason, it really works here. D- Benedict delivers a compelling performance, proving the guy had chops... It's a shame he spent his career playing second fiddle instead of finding a project that highlighted and suited his talents and gave him an opportunity to stretch himself. He takes this two-man script and runs with it, and his performance is even more remarkable when you consider that he's alone for a third of the show and plays against a toaster for the remainder. The plug was pulled on Galactica 1980 quite abruptly. A script had already been written for the next episode, the day they kidnapped Cleopatra, but work ceased before filming began. Galactica 1980 star Kent McCord had his nose put out of joint by Benedict's appearance in this episode and was threatening to strike over it, feeling that bringing Benedict back without telling him was a slap in the face and essentially blaming him for the show's failings. We never found out if McCord's threats would come to fruition, however, as The Day They Kidnapped Cleopatra was never produced. Proving the abrupt cancellation of Galactica, there's a further unproduced script after The Day They Kidnapped Cleopatra entitled The Wheel of Fire. This episode would reveal that Angela was part of the Guardians of the Universe from the Ship of Lights, as seen in the original series episode War of the Gods. Starbuck would also be revealed to now be a Guardian. Personally, I prefer that the series ended with the return of Starbuck. With Starbuck's fate left ambiguous, but him being responsible for the fleet finding Earth, the viewer is left feeling slightly uneasy, but satisfied at the same time. Starbuck proved his worth when it counted. The idea of enemies being forced to work together and discover they aren't so different after all... ...was ripe for science fiction to use as allegory. Gerry Anderson's UFO tackled a variation of this idea in a 1969 episode entitled Survival... ...and Wolfgang Peterson's Enemy Mind, released in 1984, is almost a remake of this episode. There's even an episode of The Six Million Dollar Man that is more of a remake of Hell in the Pacific than this... ...as it features an American soldier, Steve Austin, being forced to work with a Japanese soldier... For the benefit of both. This was the last time we saw any of the original actors in any capacity on Battlestar Galactica. Rumours of a sequel resurfaced for many years, even after Longreen's death in 1987. Richard Hatch wrote a series of novels that continued the story, and even included Adama's death as part of the narrative. And he funded a small trailer out of his own pocket that he hoped would drum up interest from Universal in reviving the property. It did, but sadly they went for a full-on reboot, recasting the characters and retelling the story with a darker, more contemporary bent. I greatly enjoy both versions of Galactica, and whilst the series never really found its footing or fanbase in the way that Star Trek did, this episode managed to give some element of closure to the project. Even if you've ignored Galactica 1980, and I applaud you if you have, The Return of Starbuck is well worth checking out. We'll take a short break though and plug somebody's show and when we come back, we'll cover some emails on the last couple of palaces. Stop
0: and listen! Stop and listen to me! Listen! Listen! Listen to me! You're not human. Everyone! They're here already! You're next. November 4th, 1988. Earth is invaded by an alien alliance composed of several species, including the Dominators, the Khuns, the Danegerians, and the Durlins. And they want our superheroes. Even though Australia has been decimated, the United Nations' response is unequivocal. Drop dead. First Strike, the Invasion podcast, takes you back to that moment in time and covers the entire Invasion DC Comics crossover. Issue by issue, tie-in by tie-in. Join Bass and Siskoid at fireandwaterpodcast.com or on iTunes. First Strike, the Invasion podcast. A proud member of the Fire and Water podcast network.
1: Remember, Albert. Our first email tonight is from Chris Franklin. Simply entitled, Wallopins 5. So it's presumably about the Spider-Man stuff that I'm in the middle of. Hello, Andy. Hello, Christopher. Yay, another Lee Ditko Palace episode. Great coverage, as always. And I can just see the panels as you describe them. For some reason, Spidey's struggles with his storeboat costume have always fascinated me. I still recall the image of Spidey with his pants riding up and his boots drooping down and his burr calf showing. The 80's Spidey creative team borrowed this idea when they had Spidey use the storeboat costume he got in the Spider-Man Wolverine one-shot after Venom showed up and made the black suit look bad. Can I go on record as hating when the female love interest gets mad at the hero for taking up for himself? I've never really bought that. Liz should know Flash and his goons deserve anything that Peter gives them. I've always had a problem with Flash, probably because of what you pointed out here. The man was a sociopath, as portrayed in these early issues. I honestly wouldn't have had any problem with Flash actually being the Hobgoblin, other than Flash was never that bright. I've since mellowed on him, but as a kid I hated that character. Another fantastic episode, Chris. Well, thank you, Christopher. The next episode in the Lee Ditko retrospective is written. Uh, The only reason I haven't recorded it yet is because I've had quite a bad head cold and uh, I, I wanted to wait until I could sit down and do the full hour, hour and a half it takes to record those things in one go and then not have to sit and edit it out all those snurches of me going and sniffling and blowing my nose and all that stuff. Um, so I, was, I tested the waters with this one first because it was quite a short episode and uh, I would imagine that I will be recording that one very, very soon. The current plan with regards to the Spider-Man stuff because you know, a lot of people have asked is that um, I'm going to wrap up the Lee Ditko Spider-Man. So there's one more episode of that. Then the final episode covering the final five issues of Lee Ditko. And then I think what I'll do is is leap straight into Untold Tales of Spider-Man. And uh, I think that will be a nice companion piece to what I've done with Lee Ditko. Um, Obviously, please feel free to drop me a line about what you've thought of these Lee Ditko issues or episodes that I've been doing. I have very much enjoyed doing them. I'm hoping you've very much enjoyed listening to them. But have you liked them? Have you liked the way I've done them? I've deliberately tried to do them in a way that is different to how other people have done... It's not really been an index show, but for the sake of argument, let's call it that... I've, I've tried to deliberately do it differently to how other people are doing index shows or sequential runs of comic books. I've deliberately tried to do it different to how I do the Fantastic Cast and Hey Kids Comics because if we're just going to do it the same way all the time it kind of gets boring for me and I presume that it gets boring for you as well, the listener. So let me know if you like or have any constructive criticism on how I've covered the Lead Echo stuff. I don't. If you're just going to email and say, you suck, but, you know, whatever. Let me know. I would be very interested to, to let you know what you have to say. Uh, Jason Trenner has almost email, Almost has also emailed in. He's not almost emailed in. It's quite clear he's emailed in, because the email is, is right in front of him. Uh, palace look at Spider-Man graduating and more. Greetings. Loved the look into more of the Lee Ditko era of Spider-Man. And shock that I actually have one of the stories explored. Not sure which Spider-Man trade paperback it is, but I have the story from the annual. Oh, Zan doing his magic wand... For a while, about every nine years, Zandu would come back and clash with various characters, mostly Doctor Strange, Spider-Man and Scarlet Witch. What I also have is basically, I believe, the final appearance of Zandu, which was a Secret Defenders story, also with Doctor Strange, Spider-Man and the Scarlet Witch. Yes, it was early in my comics reading that I picked up a lot of Secret Defenders issues. Oh, all the other Spider-Man stuff was interesting. Especially that comic that was starting to build plot threads from issue to issue and that Spider-Man graduated high school. I just don't have a lot to say about them. Love the show and look forward to what you do next. Well, what I did next, Jason, was an episode of Galactica 1980. I don't think anybody saw that coming me neither, to be honest. It just Like the Snur episode of the whole, that just kind of happened. I just suddenly got a Jones to watch that episode and I watched it and I actually thought it was quite an impressive piece of work, g- the, g- given sorry, the, the utter excrement that was the rest of Galactica 1980. So I hope you enjoyed this one as well, let me know. Final email tonight is from uh, Luke Giaconetta. It's a uh, Long Came a Webhead Part 4 and 5. Hey, man. Just finished up listening to parts four and five of your continuing coverage of the lead Ditko Amazing Spider-Man run, and I have to say I am continuing to enjoy it. Well, thank you, Luke. There you go. I ask for some feedback, and it's if by magic it appears magically. Well, it doesn't appear magically. It's it's science and technology, so that's not magic, really, is it? But, you know, just go go with where I'm going with it. Just pretend it's all furry dust and magic. I have read a firm out of Silver Age Marvel from this era, primarily Iron Man, Captain America, Avengers, Hulk, Ant-Man, Giant Man, and the Wasp, and Uncanny X-Men, so between those books and that show about the Fantastic Four that those two Englishmen put out, I consider myself fairly well versed in the Marvel Age of Comics. But these webhead books are clearly a bit different from those titles. There were other strips experimenting with longer stories, but this often happened in the shorter strips such as Iron Man or Cap over in Tales of Suspense, where the story would simply be serialised over two or three issues. There would still be subplots, the Tony Happy Pepper Love Triangle is a good example, but these shorter, serialised instalments seem somehow a bit less innovative than the timing of the Spider-Man stories. The full-length books such as Avengers and X-Men plus Sgt. Fury still primarily kept as single issues book-length epics which would stand on their own. Right around this time, Hulk was billed as a superhero soap opera entailed to astonish because the end of each issue would lead directly into the next do you think Stan was trying to duplicate or even improve upon what he and Steve were doing with the timeline in Amazing Spider-Man? That's actually a a genuinely good question because I've read those early Hulk's, and, yeah, it does bleed into the next storyline. I I do think Stan was very heavily influenced by what Ditko did here. And he certainly tried to carry that on into Spider-Man after Ditko left. But I think what you'll see is that without... A guiding hand of a singular plotter. Stan was just juggling too many balls to be able to keep track of his many plots and subplots and stuff. And what happens the minute Ramita takes over is it does go back to being stories that are done in one or two part stories like the Green Goblin one and others but the subplots will blend from issue like he did with the Hulk. So I think it's a case of both of them informing each other. I do believe Ditko was heavily influential on Stan's writing, in that Stan did start to lay the plot seeds of what would grow further down the line. As I say, I don't think Stan was quite as successful of it simply because of the the many books he was doing, whereas Ditko was only doing Spider-Man. But it it certainly stands to reason that what Stan was doing in Spider-Man and leapfrogging off what Ditko was doing would inform his other books. Perhaps not Fantastic Four as much because Kirby was handling the plotting on that one, but certainly the ones that Stan had more involvement with. Another line of thought, continues Luke. What do you think of the rationale behind the gradual slide into outright villainy for J. Jonah Jameson? Was this a story driver, trying to show all aspects of Peter's life crashing together, some other third thing? I like Jonah being a pain in the rear end but ultimately having some sort of integrity such as the scene in Raimi's Spider-Man where he lies to the Goblin's face to protect Peter regarding who takes pictures of Spider-Man. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm in complete agreement with you there, Luke. I think the, the sliding over into portraying Jonah as a complete and immoral villain for want of a, of a better word is actually a misstep. Certainly by the time he's funding the creation of the scorpion... which led to Dr Farley Stilwell's death... I I think you're on very thin ice with the character of Jonah... because he is indirectly responsible for that man's death though... he paid that man to create the scorpion... now whilst the scorpion did kill him... Mac Gargan wouldn't have had those powers... if Jonah hadn't paid Stilwell to do it... so there is certainly a manslaughter charge in that. So yeah, I mean the Spider Slayer story with that's, that's kind of more of an outright comedy really and you can certainly read into that that the point of that story is that Peter's hubris is what brings him to the point of defeat. He thinks that it's a joke there's no way this robot can beat him because he's Spider-Man and that, the point of that story is that, that Peter learns a valuable lesson about himself, though, about not getting too cocky and so you can kind of write that off Especially seen as he created the Spider-Slayer. or oh, he didn't create the Spider-Slayer, but he works with the, the Spider-Slayer to capture Spider-Man. He's not outright trying to kill him. Whereas the Scorpion ultimately tries to kill Spider-Man and does kill Farley Stillwell. So, uh, to me, that's where they cross the line with Jonah. But again, lovely listener. Email him with what you think about that. Luke continues, highlights for these episodes for me include the first appearance of the Beatle, who will always, in my mind, use the staccato, electronically detuned voice he had in the Spider-Man and his Amazing Friends cartoon. Besides introducing me to the Beetle, a long-time favourite B-lister of mine, that episode was also where I first saw Iron Man in action, so fateful purring right there. Of course, Shellhead would tangle briefly with the Beetle during Armour Wars. Beyond meeting the Beetle, I really liked hearing more and more about another early Peter and Johnny Storm adventure. Yeah, that Beetle episode's a cracker, and uh, I'm with you, I think, when the Beetle's handled properly like he is. There's a couple of issues Roger Stern wrote as well in Peter Parker: The Spectacular Spider-Man, where the Beetle is, is quite a formidable adversary. Luke continues, I like hearing about the origins of the Scorpion, whom I always thought was a bit underrated as a villain. In a way, he is sort of like Venom before Venom, at least in broad concept. A guy with a arachnid powers who is stronger than Peter, but mentally unhinged. Ironically, Mac Garden would have a stint as Venom. Yes, you can do air er quotes to the mic for that, because the only Venom is Eddie Brock and the alien costume, as far as I'm concerned. Of course, I still mark out like crazy for Mysterio, so his return is always a treat, Why have we not had a Quentin Beck as a secondary villain for Spidey to fight in a 20-minute subplot sequence in a movie yet? That almost writes itself. The Spider-Slayers are a delightfully Silver Age concept, seemingly more at home over in X-Men or Iron Man than in Spider-Man. And Molten Man, well, every hero needs some opponent way out of their weight class, who's there primarily to be a physical challenge, but is otherwise quite unremarkable, yes? Being born in 1980, the Green Goblin was sort of a non-entity to me as far as the Spider-Man's greatest nemesis thing is concerned. To me, that was always Dr. Octopus. Frankly, these early Green Goblin stories do make me wonder what's so great about him. Although the inclusion of Norman Osborn in the background or as a bit character is absolutely brilliant, especially since he does not seem to have any bombastic captions telling us how important he will turn out to be. Keep on making these Spider-Man episodes and I will keep listening. I think the fandom is in for a bit of a webhead joy-plosion pretty soon, what with the Civil War hitting cinemas this summer. So ride that groundswell, baby. Luke. Well, thank you, Luke, for another thought-provoking and interesting email with some very good questions. Um, yeah, I'm with you. I think I've made it quite clear on this these series of episodes. I think Dr. Octopus is the prime villain for Spider-Man rather than the Green Goblin. And regarding the bombastic captions regarding Norman Osborn, I really do think that is because Ditko just didn't tell Stan that that guy was in any way important. I think if he, if he is, Stan would have foreshadowed it in some way or done something with it. And the fact that he didn't really does imply that... Uh, that Ditko wasn't saying anything and playing it very close to the chest. It does, I mean maybe we'll get into this as I get into Ditko's last issues but it does put lie to the idea that Ditko didn't know who the Green Goblin was. Because if he doesn't, why was he seeding Norman Osborn? Why was he doing that? Because there's an issue I've not covered yet where Norman is very important. But we'll get into that when we get into my final Lead Ditko episode which is not next time. Next time will be the 6th Lee Ditko, Spider-Man retrospective, and then the seventh will follow, because that's how numbers work. And um, that'll wrap all that up, and as I say, we'll then move into Untold Tales of Spider-Man. Thank you very much for listening to this one. I hope you enjoyed it. I, I enjoyed it. I enjoyed watching Galactica 98, well, that episode of Galactica 98. Uh, remember, all episodes are available on 2 Promote them, leave me iTunes reviews... To spread the word, because this is a little vanity project, and I don't really do a lot of promotion for it. Because, and um, I just being honest, this this isn't ego or anything. I honestly didn't know that anyone would be interested in it. I thought this would be one of those things that like five people listen to, two of them being my mum and dad so you know I'm happy that people seem to be listening and enjoying Uh, 2 has a number of great shows for you to listen to including my other shows Hey Kids Comics and Listen to the Profits which is a Star Trek Deep Space Nine podcast and if you want to drop by 2 and buy stuff from Amazon through the link there feel free to do so as, as I always say that helps keep the light on and helps us make more projects like this that we hope you enjoy as much as I enjoy doing them thank you for joining us me. There is no us. There is only me. There is no Zool. Something like that, wasn't it? Anyway, and uh, I'll be back next time with some lovely dick called Thanks Thank you very much. Bye-bye. <laughs>